Fella. Funny fella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Hi, welcome to the Fringeworthy Podcast. This is our very first episode, and we're going to be talking about all things Fringeworthy. Now, the uh, first issue we need to talk about is the fact is that this is the new edition of Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy came out in 1980, and it has been in its now, is it the uh, fourth edition, John? Yep, it's fourth edition, and... What's new in this edition is that we've went to D20 Modern System for the for the rule set. We did that because that was a major market player. Let's talk a little bit more about the game itself, sure. uh, about how to order it. Because since you're here on the podcast, probably you know what Fringeworthy is. So in order to get the new edition of Fringeworthy, the best way of getting it is to go to the TriTac main site, which is www.tritacgames.com. Now, we're going to give you a couple of websites for you guys to, and groups to log on to. That way, all the information that we're talking about, we're going to make sure we put under a, a message uh, our show notes. And the very first thing that probably you need to do is to get logged on, first of all, to trytacgamesnospaces.com and order the game. And there they'll have an advertisement for uh, Fringeworthy, the D20 version. It's going to be this big splash ad on the main page. And you just click on the button to either create a mailing uh, request where you can send in your, uh, your check or money order, or you can just click on the PayPal button to order. But there will also be a, a button there, a link to the uh, TriTag Gamers website. And that is the uh, place where we're going to be putting the primary support for Fringeworthy. There are two locations that we highly recommend that you go to. The first one, of course, is TriTacGamers.com. Of course, the www.TriTacGamers.com. Dot com. You log in there um, you know, as a user. It's really important that you log in and register because there's certain of the uh, areas that you can't get access to unless, of course, you do register. The other place is a, a Yahoo group, and the way you get to that is you type in www.groups.yahoo.com. And then it'll say, find a group and type in Fringeworthy. And the very first one that comes up will be the one that you want to uh, join up to. And that is our fan group. That is basically where all the fans get and they talk about things and they basically publish their stories. Not only is there like 15 years worth of messages, but there's lots of files. And uh, we're going to basically keep very much link between that and the TriTechGamers.com. Is there anything else that you can add, John? Well, no. The, well, the TriTech Gamers site is a collection of forums, and it's actually going to probably be our our main company official website uh, for all for all the information. Uh, so check there every so often and see what's going on. The Yahoo group is 
more of a discussion group for everyone to sit there and sit there and talk about various things, talk about different aspects of Fringeworthy. Well, one thing I just, just crossed my mind was that it's about what this is based on. Like I said, it's based on the D20 uh, Modern rule set, but you don't have to go out and buy D20 Modern. TSR has made available the, the source reef reference document, or the SRD, which is available on, on their website, and we'll, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So you can actually link there and just download the uh, D20 Modern SRD and not have to worry about buying a game that you probably won't otherwise use. Right. There, I found over uh, five good links. The easy way of doing it, of course, is to go into your search engine and just type in D20 space Modern space SRD. And it'll pull up a whole bunch of links for you. And like I said, I found five links that worked really well. I'm not saying don't go out and buy the book. I got nothing against giving Wizards money. Keep in mind the fact that D20 Modern includes not only the main source book, but it also includes D20 Past and D20 Future. And there's a number of equipment guides that are on and so these things can be very helpful to you in the actual game. But if you just need the raw information then these links are great and the SRDs are great and they don't cost you, you know, you don't have to spend $100 to get started in this game. You just have to buy the actual book itself for $19.95. Yeah, I also think that we should mention that any D20 book that you own, uh, especially the modern books, be able to be used in Fringeworthy because it's an interdimensional, multidimensional game. So it, does, it would never hurt to have any of the other books. They'll only enhance your, your gaming experience. That's an excellent point, Otto. And says we're going to be talking in future podcasts about how to set up an adventure in the near past, the near future, the far past, and the far future. And, you know, all that stuff involves equipment and rules and environments. And all that stuff is very helpful. You know, there's lots and lots of source books out there that can give you what you need. So you don't have to say, you know, well, i got to wait for the new edition to come out before I know how to handle that. I mean, really, it's a very rich environment. Otto, you did most of the art, the new art, especially for the uh, new edition of Fringeworthy. Is any of your art going to be available anywhere for people to see? Well, prints with me, mm-hmm. uh, most of the stuff that I do. And I have a website, uh, which is studio187.com, which is basically whenever I do any kind of work, I always kind of run it through my own studio. Now, of course, all the stuff for Fringeworthy is, is property of Fringeworthy. But I do have a whole whole bunch of other art, and I'm going to continue developing art. I have a couple pieces that uh, didn't make it in the book because I couldn't get them done by the deadline. They were extra pieces I was just going to give to Rich to put in there wherever he could put them. But I, I as, as I said, I didn't get around to finishing those yet because it takes me a while to do do some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I do plan on finishing them anyway, and then maybe um, sell those, see if Rich wants to sell them through his site, or uh, I may even make them free to download. Blank, so I always thought that Fringeworthy was was a perfect choice to create really fantastic art. I put art up on my wall. I buy prints. And so I would love to have something that was, you know, big enough to be frameable. So, you know, I just uh, when, when you when you do the, do your art, you know, make the resolution high enough that we can put it up on our walls and enjoy it, not just on our TV, not uh, on our computer screens as the background. Oh, yeah. I always start everything out every Every piece of artwork I do, I work in 300 DPI and I work in full size. So if it's an 8x10, it's an 8x10 at 300 DPI. So that is that is sort of like it's pretty much the industry standard for print quality stuff. If it's 300 DPI at the size that you're going to print it, um, you can generally blow it up to two or three times its normal size. 
and still not lose too much quality. But that's that's what you want to start with. That's what you want your base file to be. So that's what I always work in. Okay, great. So, so Bruce, uh, I understand that part of everything, everything else you've done so far for the for the game. I mean, we we both me and Bruce have been involved with Fringe really for. Jeez, how long? As long but, as it's been around, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, but weren't you recently interviewed on, on All Games Considered? Right, All Games Considered. They have an interview for, it's episode 103, May 16th. If you go to their website, and again, if you don't know how to do that, go to your search engine, type in All Games Considered podcast, and you'll find your way there, and just scroll down through the archives. Until you find it, you can download their their podcast if it's not available to you uh, through iTunes. And and I'm right about the middle of it. <laughs> and it's me talking about the game and what I like about it and what how things were different. It's really not very long. It's only about maybe 10 minutes. Believe me, I could have gone on for a couple hours, which is, of course, why we have a podcast here. Right, John? That's right. And now it's time for a quick station identification. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. So, what is Fringeworthy? For some of you folks out there who've played the game, we probably don't need to tell you what Fringeworthy is, but for you new folks out there, Fringeworthy, as basic sense, is a game of interdimensional role-playing, where your characters get to travel from one world to another alternate Earth and an explore. The basics of Fringeworthy is that, and it may sound familiar, so don't worry, don't worry if it does, um, is that an ancient race left behind a portal on our world that only one person in oh, 100,000 can use. And they use this portal to travel to a basically a network of pathways to other worlds and other major worlds. We can break this down a little bit. There are prime worlds which have about eight portals that lead out into the, into the fringe network or the fringe path as we call it but they all go to different locations on the world so it's no, not only does that mean that that world sh- as a designer should be more interesting than let's say a, a world that only has one portal but it also means that you got a kind of an interesting shortcut to other places in the world because of the fact you could literally leap thousands of miles by walking through one portal crossing over to another one and then entering back to the world through that second portal. That's correct. And the next portal out is the uh, alternate platform and alternate. You can take this how you want to alternate to the primary world or alternate to whatever you feel like calling alternate to. And there is just different kinds of worlds. There are the familiar, you know, what if Elvis didn't die uh, to, to the various, what if we didn't evolve type worlds. There's also worlds where the builders, the Termelon grew up on and developed. Uh, those should be fairly rare, but when you do encounter them, they will be, well, very different than, than your ordinary world. Well, the biggest thing that we have to keep in mind that makes Fringeworthy different than, let's say, uh, a lot of other games is the fact is that there's been an, an, a catastrophe that this whole world takes place, this whole game takes place in. All these worlds we're talking about, like the worlds that the ancient races to Melorn build up their civilization on and they might have lived, they're in destruction. They're, you know, they, they have 
it's been a thousand years since there's been a total war that has destroyed over 80% of all of the million, million worlds that were part of the Commonwealth. So when you go out there as an explorer, you're expected to see a lot of ruins. You're expected to hopefully see, you know, you might see some remnants. You're going to see people recovering from a disaster. And in some cases, some people who didn't recover at all. That's one of the things is, as you put it, John, he says, it's a story of an apocalypse, except it wasn't ours. Right. It's more of a game of survival than, than much of anything else, really. Uh, there is adventure and wonder and stuff like that. But the ultimate, I think the, the, the dark, underlining, overwhelming theme, it's all about survival. Right. The one thing that Fringeworthy is not is it's not a travelogue. An adventure has to have conflict. It has to have personalities. It has to have something driving the action. So I'm just saying, Fringeworthy, though it involves these really exotic locations, it's still not a travelogue. It's a story. In some cases, it could be funny. It can be uh, outrageous. It could also be a great tragedy because, as I say, there was an apocalypse a thousand years ago. And in some places, the apocalypse is still going on. And hopefully more than just the world of the week as well, which can, it could also fall into if you're not careful. Well, that's the job of the GM, right? That's true. But, you know, some GMs need a hand out there sometimes. Create an adventure or create a campaign that it doesn't devolve down to the world of the week. Right. So, Blinks, what do you think uh, is something that is is fringeworthy that's different than, let's say, another game? Well, I personally like the villain. I think the villain in this story is, is by far the best. And my group have even defined it as a, as a psychological condition. We call it the Meller effect. And what that is, is no matter what game you're playing, the second you introduce a doppelganger of any kind, even if it's a spy or whatever, but in our case, Mellers, everything goes to hell. Everybody loses their mind. Everybody's pointing guns at each other. You know, um, as soon as there's even the remotest suspect of a Meller being in a party. And to me, the effect that that's had on our gaming over the years um, really, really puts the, you know, the, the head on this, that, that the, the Meller really make for a great, great villain. And, I, you know, the, I think the backstory on this the, with the Tremelin being kind of really elusive um, and, and it's kind of like sometimes it's kind of a search for them because they you know you're looking for the answers or you're looking for some way to stop all this and they seem to be the only real answer because you know you don't have to what are you going to do just shoot every Mellor that seems to be impossible right because but, yeah. Mellors are shape changers therefore right. they can be literally the your worst nightmare right they can be your best friend until they become the Mellor right in my campaign itself, uh, we've played now for almost two years, and even though they've run into the Meller three times, they're still not sure they've ever run into them. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I and, like that. And different Meller behave differently, too. I mean, as I pointed out, with the Master Meller, which is the, high, the highest level Meller, they don't actually engage in combat. They may do things like, oh, hello there, big boy. You come here often and take it from there. You never know you've just met Miller and he's just made a copy of you. Of you. That's true. So the, the hello, big boy, was him coming up and giving you a little tweak somewhere and, and grabbing that uh, telepathic genetic material that lets him change into you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And steal your memories so he can pr- impersonate you perfectly. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Of course, I always said the blessing is that 99% of the Master Miller out there are sterile, which is the only saving grace for this entire thing. They may play various tricks and games with the with the players, but 
you know, that's probably a topic for the future because, you know, because when you start out, Miller, that's a funny, it's, that's that, that name and that stupid little poem you hear, Mushy Miller, Funny Feller. Right. Other than that, you know, the players should be relatively ignorant of what the Miller are. Right, unless, of course, they're the longtime players who are listening to this podcast. They're like, oh, yeah, we know all about Meller. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the reasons why you guys should pick up the new edition, because I was the one who actually wrote up the Meller under the D20 Modern Rules, and I really made a difference between the various kinds. They are much scarier. They have a huge physical presence that they didn't used to have. It was all through descriptions of the GM. Now it's actually part of the game mechanics. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. The Master Miller goals are bringing down the Termellum. So, but in the meanwhile, they also are, are trying to sow as much destruction as they can within the system. The Meller hate all things that they're about the Temelor. And one of the things we introduced was the reason why the fringe path came into existence was so that the Temelorn could unite all of their alternate versions of themselves. Earth is an alternate version of Temelorn Prime. All the different worlds, all the different nodes, they're all connected up to a world that is, in essence, an all version of T prime. So even though we're human and we're descended from apes and not descended from whatever it is that Tamelarn are descended from, we are still considered Tamelarn by the Tamelarn. And that's mm. why the Meller hate us. And that's why no matter what world they go to, they want to destroy whatever civilization is there because they know that's, that if Sooner or later, the Tamelor are going to find out what happened and it's going to hurt them because they're going to know that they're responsible for the death and destruction that the Meller caused because uh. the Tamelor created the Meller. But let's pull this back back to our uh, our question, which was, why play Fringeworthy rather than, let's say, D&D? It's, it's the big 800-pound gorilla. Why leave your D&D game and come play Fringeworthy? Well, I got a good answer for that. You don't really have to. You you play Fringeworthy, and if you want to go to a D&D world and, and run around with swords and stuff, you still can, but you have the option to do other things as well. I mean, you can go anywhere and do anything. That's the beauty of it. So Fringeworthy allows you to have magic uh, in the game, even though it says it's a science fiction role-playing game? Yeah, sure, why not? And because of this modular universal kind of trans universal travel, you can actually have one set of worlds where there's magic and then you could have others where magic doesn't work. And so the bad guy with his big, you know, honk and black sword and, you know, that eats souls and talks suddenly doesn't do anything except lay there and look kind of strange on that world. And then the person who walks up to him with a 357 Magnum or a 22 caliber says, oh, your sword doesn't seem to do much. Bang, bang. Right, right. Yeah. I was going to say that also the sword now weighs a ton because it's no longer being magically lifted. Right. Well, I was actually talking, I was referencing Stormbringer and it did yeah. move on its own. So you know, quite literally, you could have a, you could suddenly find yourself with a weapon that is literally impossible for you to manage because it no longer moves on its own and helps you. Fringeworthy is not just a, a game of exploration. It's also a cyberpunk game. It's also sure. a modern espionage game. It's a time travel game. For what a future game? game? Yeah, it's... Features. When you put the Meller in there and you use them properly, it is one hell of a horror game. Sure, yeah. I mean, and 
really bad, a, a real horror game. Right. Have any of you guys ever done a kind of a Call of Cthulhu type scenario? I oh, have. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. I have also. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> one of the one of the portals was near Innsmouth. You know, one of the big strengths of Fringeworthy is the fact that it is multi-genre. I think and, that's its strongest. I think that's the best thing about it. Now, that is, that is one of the reasons why Design Group chose D20 Modern was because there had been so many D-modern, uh, D20 products of all these very famous games so that you actually could easily go from one type of genre to another. Now, there are some purists out there that would say, oh, well, yeah, but your rule set should really reflect the tone that you want your game to have. D20 will never match the original Cthulhu rules, for example, or the cyberpunk rules. But I think that it can do a pretty good job if you have a, a game master who's willing to free his mind and really go with some things and maybe not let the rules lawyers run his game. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed as a player, because French where they will push your playing ability to the limit because if you want to stay true to a certain character a certain character type putting him in an environment that is completely out of what he would normally be in and then trying to role play that is just amazing sometimes some of the games have just been fantastic so you're playing a character whose background he was a cop you know he joined idet and he goes off into the french paths and he winds up in a D type setting a bad player would be like oh, okay i'm gonna get some armor and a sword and run around and it's like no 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 that's not what a cop would do. I'm trying to think of, okay, I'm a cop and I'm in D&D. What, what do I do now? And then trying to work with that, I think, is, is, a, is a really fun challenge as a, as a player. So unlike a lot of games where you're basically min-maxing your characters, you're saying, okay, I'm playing in this game and we're, we're in a medieval world, so I, my character is a striker type, and therefore he's going to have all his skills oriented toward this and stuff like that, uh, and all his equipment are, is going to be oriented toward this. And... We're going to end up basically with uh, a real fish-out-of-water scenario instead, where you have mm-hmm. someone who isn't min-maxed in that sense and is going to end up being stuck in a world that he's not innately designed for, but he can grow in the direction that he wants to. I was listening to the uh, Brilliant Gameologists, and they were talking about min-maxing characters. And, and they see it as a positive thing, where what you're really saying is that, how do I make my character the best with what's available to me? But in our game, you're saying, I want to be true to my character as far as his roots are concerned and try to extrapolate out from there different directions for him to travel. Oh, yeah. When I play Fringeworthy, it's almost not about the winning or losing or getting the treasure or anything. Sometimes surviving is is all that really counts. Being brought up with challenge. Oh, man, how am I going to do this? I'm a cop from New York or whatever. Not that I've ever played a cop from New York, but the point is, say I'm playing a cop from New York, and I'm like, well, I don't know how to do this. Let's say we got to sail across the sea to get to this island to get some things so that we can get back inside another castle to get back through the portal or whatever. It's just it's amazing the challenge that presents and how satisfying it is when you overcome it. It's, oh, yeah. I think it's it's a much more rewarding gameplay. And that is the essence of, of Fringeworthy in that you're one person in 100,000. Therefore, it's highly unlikely you're going to be optimized for, for exploring the fringe paths. Yeah, exactly. Three of the uh, introductory characters, uh, uh, Sayuri, Gordon, and uh, Wele, are a climatologist, a bicycle messenger, and a farmer. I mean, there's a tri- there's a trio of people there who are not optimized for combat. Well, except for me, Gordon, he might be optimized for combat. But otherwise, girls, Sayuri and Wele, 
they're not optimized. <laughs> one's a business person, one's a uh, scientist. And here they are on the fringe paths. Lord knows what's going to happen to them because they're team one. I'll tell you, the, the character I played the longest and had the most fun with was an anthropologist. Oh, maybe they just die for this kind of adventure. Right. Well, that's why I thought he'd be a good character for, for the game. He grew into being able to fight over time, but it was a real challenge playing a character like that, and I, I really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. What's different about this new edition from prior editions? What I remember, because I wrote it, was gave the whole background of the Tamelor and Meller War and also how the Tamelor themselves grew from basically a, a furry creature hanging on a tree all the way up into a uh, dimension-spanning civilization. John, what do you remember as being new? We started covering a lot more of the history and, and the fact that there was the, the, the Commonwealth we detailed out how the Tremelin dealt with non-Tremelin and, and created the uh, the Commonwealth. We also defined the fact that the fringe paths are the Jeffrey's tubes to a bigger system. But the bigger system wasn't like some sort of giant portal or some gate. It's basically a bit like the Krell machine from the movie Forbidden Plant in that you wanted something, there it was in your table. You need a table, there's a table too. Yeah, it was basically the ability to pull from one dimension to another dimension, more or less instantaneously without any effort or thought. So this big system, as you're referring to, could put a, a scrambled egg on your breakfast table, or it could park a new moon in orbit. Yeah, if you want to do that, of course, if you park a new moon in orbit, you deal with the consequences, too, with that well, as well. Well, of course, in a, in a civilization like the Commonwealth, I'm sure that they had enough checks and balances in place to make sure that orbital insertion was done properly and, and things didn't happen accidentally. Yeah. At least until after the fall of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth consists of other Earths with different sapiens, and it, that includes humans. Even though this may have taken place thousands or even um, hundreds of thousands of years ago, because of the nature of the, the, the things are time-slipped and time-shifted and all that sort of things, it's quite possible that Earth Prime, which is where the game's set in, is actually a latecomer into the world of humanity. There may actually have been humans way back when, part of the Commonwealth. And then, of course, they fell during the war. So human history could be the same on a different world. It could just be that it started a thousand years earlier than our on our world. Whatever spark it was that, that created human intelligence happened a thousand years earlier. And so, you know, because in our own world, not much changes. As the world revolves, it goes around the sun. You know, the stars might be slightly different in the sky, but more or less... Uh, one year is like another, so if if life started a thousand years earlier, or uh, not life, but civilization and humanity's brain and understanding started a thousand years later, then we walk through and it's like, you know, the year 1000, or it could be like the year 3000. And we could have, you know, one-eyed aliens and, and people, you know, with all kinds of strange things walking around, people with genetic implants and Oh, yeah. All kinds of stuff. So, Brave new world. Right. 
So, so the people that are in the Commonwealth, they could be just like you and us, except they had a, a either the a advanced or, or retarded background uh, uh, culture, or they could be completely different because they went a completely different route than we did. So one of the things when I was looking at the new edition that I wasn't 100% clear on was, is the, com- is the Commonwealth, is it still active? The Commonwealth actually is, in a sense, in three parts. There's the full Commonwealth members, and these are the people that live like gods. They had access to the big system. They were f- fully integrated with all the other worlds that were part of the Commonwealth. They were essentially were the, the movers and shakers. Uh, you know, To them, as they say, they lived like gods. Then you had the people that were what we call client worlds, which is where they were— part of the Commonwealth, but there were still some things about the world that kept them from being fully brought into the Commonwealth. And there were some rules, some admission requirements that you had to have in order to be part of the Commonwealth. And so those worlds were client worlds in the sense that there was probably some other worlds that were helping them along and trying to work through some issues. They they hadn't come to uh, equilibrium with their ecology could be that they still were holding on to ancient racial hatreds that were causing the people not to be able to give up, constantly be in conflict and turmoil because they hadn't come to peace with each other. There could be a lot of things. You know, it could be there's your system of government, just what didn't provide equality for all, or at least a basic human uh, or uh, organismal uh, standard of living for everyone on the planet. So that, that made them clients. Okay, And then there was the third type, which were people that were so primitive from their point of view that they couldn't even know about the Commonwealth. And those were the worlds, which are the majority of them actually, where the Meller were sent because they were the ones that were supposed to help nurture those worlds to the point where the Commonwealth could announce themselves to those worlds and hopefully bring them into client status. Now, oh, one, I see. Okay. Now, one important thing about those Meller that went to and nurse made those worlds, they were sent there as guides, as his assistants. So if you have a Leonardo da Vinci, he was human, but he may have had an assistant to help him along with some of the harder aspects of his concepts. And more, likely, have... and more likely he had a, a patron. That's true. Because most of the great composers and and artists and engineers and whatever had somebody foot in the bill, somebody who appreciated the the quality of genius. Right. No need for black molives, just a fellow who gives you an extra florin for your pretty picture. I got you. To promote your work and promote your ideals and your advancement. The goal was not to hold their hands, but actually was to encourage them along the right path but let them take the steps. Right, right. When the Tameller and Meller War happened, which really was the Commonwealth versus the Meller War, the people who were the full client members, they took the brunt of it. That's the ones that the Meller were really trying to take out. Okay, And those are the worlds that basically are the, are the ones that are utterly destroyed. So the people that had the best technology, who had the, the most resources and everything else, those are the ones that you're going to find in ruins. The ones that were in the client status, those are the ones that are most likely to have then grown up to be, you know, now maybe the the people who are actually ruling a, a number of worlds surrounding them, because they are, w- might have been able to hold on to their technology after the big system crashed because of the war, they might have been able to keep their civilization going. 
And if they did, then they're going to be very strong now. But, of course, since they're not perfect, remember, they, there was a reason they weren't in the Commonwealth. Those old hatreds that they might have had for each other, that lack of equilibrium in their ecology, they might have crashed also. Plus, you, you throw in the whole, you know, what, what our team calls it, the Meller factor, and everybody is pointing their finger at everybody else. Right. Uh, suspicions fly high. And, yeah, if, if you had anyone who was even thinking about bombing somebody else, you the know, bombs flew. The, right, they flew. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. So the, the worlds that actually have the best possibility of actually rising up to be the, uh, the real powers are the ones that never knew about the Commonwealth and who might have advanced over the last thousand years to the point where they actually have discovered the fringe path and might actually be going out and trying to make contact with other worlds. And that's exactly where Fringeworthy starts. Earth Prime is one of those worlds. We had no idea that the Commonwealth existed. And what do we do? We're building a group of people to go out, contact other worlds, try to create associations between those worlds, try to bring everybody into a group that can start exploring further, building relationships, moving out. In a sense, we are a seed of the new Commonwealth, and we're hoping to find, A, more members, and B, more seeds that might be out there. I, I refer to them in the book as power centers. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but we're one of them. You know, we uh, Earth Prime, if you go in even one or two years into the game, they they have the alien core. You know, there's a dozen worlds that are working with Earth Prime to to basically uh, explore. And I don't want to use the word exploit in a bad way, but, you know, to 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 take advantage of the, the fringe path and the worlds that are out there literally waiting to be discovered and to be and to be contacted. Yeah. And right. And one of the other difference, differences in the original, in the uh, in the second edition, or was it third edition? No, well, in the the last edition before the the D twenty edition, we we did detail several of these these peoples: the uh, the Norlanders, the the uh, the Mixi, and the Victorians. And what we've done in this this edition of D twenty of, of Fringeworthy, we've actually given you more information about the Victorians. Who turned right. out actually had been on the pathways six months before we were on the pathways, even though we're prime and they're not. They're a lot less aggressive in their exploration than we are. Theirs is a secret organization. That's correct. Uh, so they don't have the resources available to them. Earth Prime does because they they can't like build a huge complex somewhere because people would notice something going on and they want to keep that on the QT. That's correct. Right. Her, her, majesty, her Majesty's at, at their service is very is, is a very covert service. The fact that they actually have a fairly diverse team shows how, how even for, even for a covert service, they had to go to all the various colonies and so forth to find members for for their service. That does give us a, a place where we can, for the fringe worthy uh, of Earth Prime and the fringe worthy of the Victorian Earth to work together, and, and the other difference we also did with them, we moved them from a alternate alternate platform to their own prime world, so they're actually on equal footing with Earth Prime in that aspect. Uh, now, one thing we didn't detail a whole lot more extra though was, of course, the ASA, the other fringe really on Earth Prime. Yeah, the Chile and was the African Social Alliance, I believe, is was the uh, is the acronym. Of course, looking at Things going on in Africa right now is getting very kind of scary. It's looking about, you know, who knows what it may actually happen. You never know. 
there's a lot of things we can do with the ASA, and it really is up to the GM to say, okay, how much? Where do I want the focus of my game to be? My personal uh, opinion is, I'm not really that interested in what the ASA is doing on Earth. I'm more interested in what they are doing out on the fringe pass. Right. I liked. Um, I have to point out that that what I really liked was how you explained some of the things that were a little weird to our group. You know, we were just like, why why wouldn't this work? You know, like uh, the fact that electronics don't work once they've transitioned until you recharge them to slow down taking massive weapons of destruction out onto the French path as, as a defense mechanism against the uh, – for the purposes of the war. I thought that was pretty cool. We introduced the concept that instead of the behavior on the fringe paths being an integral part of the fringe path itself, that fringe space doesn't support electricity or other things like that. We said, no, this is this is a default condition, which means right. that the GM, therefore, has the power to change things the way he wants them to be. Uh, though, of course, we do recommend he does that very carefully because, uh, as John remembers, I got into a lot of trouble with another group one time when they made a lot of changes to the game, and I raised the question, well, okay, is it still fringeworthy? <laughs> right. Now that you've changed all these things? Oh, Lord. Right. Yeah. <laughs> though I remember we had considered, when it comes to the power drain, that the power drain was to power the the platforms and the pathways, but... I believe we dropped that, didn't we? No, the, the the French path doesn't need power from any of the devices that we bring yeah, on. Yeah, that's what I thought. We, we dropped that, yeah. yeah. For it does take the power out of the device in such a magical way that even though you're draining you know, 450 cold crank and amps out of your battery, the battery doesn't even get warm. So that's pretty magical. Oh, yeah. the, the magical one is when you take a box full of uranium and you get a box full of lead. That's the magical one. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. But yeah, that's that's all part of the original game. Now what we did change, however, in the game was we changed this the structure of the actual fringe pass. We explained uh, that the the platforms themselves are actually they have gravity on the top and the bottom now instead of just being on the top. There isn't a force field holding the air in. What's holding it in is all the gravity that's coming from the platform. So now instead of having ninety seven feet of air and then vacuum you have miles and miles of air going up until it would run out like it would on our own world because you know it's just too far away from this you know the inverse square law of gravity i thought we were talking about having it do a mobius and loop back and come down the other side on the bottom well, or do we well, drop that no no that's there uh the idea is is that if you keep going up Okay, you will eventually run out of atmosphere because there's only, you know, gravity is going to hold the atmosphere down toward the platform only so far. But you keep going, and, and uh, as far as if, if you move outside the platform where there's no gravity and you keep going straight up, which you can do, you keep traveling, 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 get your spacesuit, get your jet car, or whatever you're going to use, you keep going, and eventually you find yourself coming up on the bottom side of the platform. So the space that's around the platform is actually a ring. Hmm. But so, it's a, pretty cool. But yeah. it's a ring that doesn't curve. Well, so, it, it doesn't look like it curves, but obviously space is very strange in fringe space. And yeah. we are talking about hundreds of thousands of miles yeah, before yeah. it loops back around and comes on the bottom. But we came with a reason why there's actually gravity on the platform. The platform only was like an inch or so thick on the it's outside. It's four feet. It's four feet thick. Four feet thick on the outside, 9,000 miles thick on the inside. There's a core of a planet inside there providing the gravity. Huh. 
Okay. Right. So the, what the Tamellers did was they simply went and just piled in mass inside the box until he provided that 0.97% G coming off the top and therefore the bottom. But because of the way it interfaces with the fringe space on the sides, all you have is microgravity because only the, the, the let's say, the, the slice if, you, if you're kind of looking at it as like an integration, you know, you're only got four feet of, of gravity from the side, and it's only a 600-foot wide piece, column of dirt. So that's not going to provide any gravity on the side. So that's why there's only gravity on the top of the bottom and not on the side. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I got so, it. But yes. that's, you know. It's also porous, too, because there's actually a little headspace in there for air, for air circulation and so forth. Yeah. Air goes through the bottom, and it percolates through 9,000 miles of dirt. So it doesn't matter how bad the uh, poison gas you throw out. It's never going to reach the other end. It's the perfect filter. And then it comes mm. bubbling out the other side. You'll never run out of air because there's a huge, huge reservoir of air inside this platform, this TARDIS box where it's bigger on the inside than on the outside. I sort of right. imagine that. I sort of imagine that if you if you were look inside, you would actually see a small little forest growing inside there. But that's just me thinking. But uh, <laughs> but also it means that suction pads don't work on the top of the platform. You put a suction pad down, it comes off because it's always getting air into it. Right. But if you put one on the bottom, it'll never run out. The platform itself will add to the suction. Hmm. And also, if you pour water on the bottom, you know, slowly the water will disappear. Well, uh, okay. And, and because you have that column of air on the top where there's gravity in the, uh, on top of the platform but not off the platform, that causes air to be pulled downward, hit the platform, and then move out to the side. And when it does that, of course, it goes off of, out of the gravity, which then allows it to flow upwards. So it creates a counter movement of air down toward the platform, out off the platform, back up alongside the platform, and then spilling down into the column again. So you have a constant breeze blowing straight down onto the platform. Sweet. So there, there's a lot of interesting things that we've done to try to get people to say, hey, you know, there's some things we could do with that. Wow, how strong is that wind? Could we set up some kind of a windmill and to run and get mechanical energy off of that and maybe run a toilet or something? I don't know. Right. I mean, more importantly, maybe a, a woodworking shop or a metal shop so that we can do construction of equipment on the platform. When we go through the world, we find out, hey, I need something and I don't have it and I'm now 500 miles away from Earth Prime. Hey, but I brought all this equipment and we can run uh, our metal shop and our, and our woodworking shop or whatever else we might want to do and actually you know, do effective work on the platform. Now, Bruce, or, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Otto. Or, or if you think about it, if somebody gets in a fight, like getting in a fight with a bunch of French pirates, and somebody tosses a, a nerve gas grenade over your way, you know, is that gas just going to sit there for days and days? Well, no, because you have a breeze, and it would answer that question, you know, because otherwise, where would the gas go? Right. It would just hang out. And we always said before that the gas dissipated within about 20 minutes, and we never explained why. It was kind right. of magical. Well, now there's a really good reason why. Getting pushed out the side, sucked into the bottom, and then, you know, 9,000 miles later, it's been absorbed into the dirt of the planet, the planetary core inside the platform, and nothing but fresh air is coming out. Book, there's also one other thing, too. Don't whiz off the edge of the platform. Otherwise, you'd be wearing it a couple of days later. Right. So one of the things that the new edition has is a whole big introductory story that basically tries to give the GM, especially the new GM, a feel for what it's like. 
you know, what it'd be like to run an adventure so that they can get the tone, the gestalt of what it's like to actually be exploring the Fringe Pass. John wrote that, and yep. you did a wonderful job, John. I thank you very much. Oh, yeah. It's been edited down. The original version is actually one of the Portal books, uh, but Bruce went through and did a wonderful job editing it down and writing some in- but, uh, interlude pieces to go along with it, help it along. So, yeah, you did a good job too, Bruce. My biggest skill is taking something good and making it better. Is there anything else that we included in the edition that was a big change? Since we did do D20 Modern, and which, of course, is very close to D20, all of those books, splat books, whatever, I mean, there are literally dozens of weapon books and equipment books and things like that that are out there available for people to, you can get a PDF, a huge D20 library for nothing. And it has all these, all the stats and equipment that you need to run the game, or even just to say, hey, you know, here's information about this piece of equipment that might be useful to you to use in your game to solve a problem. My personal point of view is that equipment are feats that you get without having to spend a feat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. that's, that's what we need to talk about. As fringeworthy, yeah, you may have wealth of like plus 20 or something like that. You never use it because, well, you work for the government. Well, or, right. you, or you might, depending if you run a mercenary style campaign like Bruce ran. What we did in the game, we said, okay, instead of using your wealth as saying this is what you're buying with your wealth, we instead used it as a method of controlling how quickly you got requisitions through. Because you could use your wealth, for example, to make connections with people, juice the wheels. Wealth became, in a sense, your reputation. And that helped you get equipment and resources from IDET and other places in the world that might be helpful. Uh, one of the things that I used a lot, and I still do in my game, is, is that when people become more famous, uh, you watch the guys who are in the road racing. They have all like, you know, uh, they're sponsored by all kinds of things. Well, there's people out there that are literally begging to go and give you their equipment to use on the French Pass during an exploration. If you'll just take your camcorder and record you using it and then say, look, this alien world and our equipment is there our equipment's making the difference whether it is or not but that's part of the ad and so a lot of equipment and stuff that you might not easily get your hands on might be, become available to you just because of the PR value to the company that produces it you're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast That's it for this, the very first Fringeworthy podcast. And I want to thank everyone who's listened all the way through to the end. And we just, and hopefully you liked what you, you heard. If you don't like it, please let us know because we're primarily interested in making sure that we give you something that will make your game that much better. And so we're, we're here to help you and get jazzed up about your campaign. So please log on to our news groups, log on to our bulletin boards, send us email, We want to hear from you. Thank you guys for listening and for enjoying the game and taking the time to to play a game that has a little bit more to it than uh, some of the other hack and slash World of Warcraft type variants that call themselves RPGs. This is Bruce. Uh, Otto, what do you have to say? Watch out for the Mellers. They're really dangerous. But honestly, thanks for joining us. Email us. Let us know what you liked and what you hated. Uh, either way, and, and we'll take everything into advice and uh, give us ideas for stuff you want to hear about in the future. So, folks, keep your powder dry, 
keep the cards and lairs coming in, and we'll see you next time on the Fringeworthy Podcast.